Show Tune Sunday. I love musicals because they have the power to paint a vivid picture of reality and invite us into stories that have the potential to expand how we see our world and the human experience. In 2014, when my daughter Lucy was four years old, a movie version of the musical Annie was released starring Jamie Foxx as Will Stacks and Quivenze Wallace as Annie. I remember seeing the original with Aileen Quinn back in 1982, but in this new version, Annie was a 10-year-old foster kid living in Harlem. My daughter was obsessed with this movie, made me watch it incessantly over and over again to the point where I can still sing every song from the soundtrack word for word. But as I thought about Annie and all my favorite musicals this week, the question that kept coming to my mind was, why are there so many musicals about orphans? You may be thinking, Ben, are there really that many musicals about orphans? Yes. The internet movie database claims there are 119 musicals featuring orphans. To say that orphans are a common theme or common character in musicals would be a wild understatement. And it's not just the classical stuff like Oliver or A Tale of Two Cities, but contemporary musicals like Annie and Les Mis, Cinderella, Aladdin, Frozen, The Jungle Book, Newsies, Peter Pan, James and the Giant Peach, Rags to Riches, Anchors Away, The Pirates of Penzance. Harry Potter was an orphan. In case you were wondering, for God's sakes, even Hamilton was an orphan. What's the deal with all the orphans? The phenomenon is not unique, it turns out, to musical theater, but emerges from Western literature where orphans play a massive role. In her article, Why Do We Write So Much About Orphans, author Liz Moore states, if I can make an excuse for myself and all writers who find ourselves drawn over and over again to the orphan trope from Dickens to the Bronte sisters to J.K. Rowling, I would say that writing about orphans is a way to write about the terror of being alone in the world. Our orphaned characters, she says, offer the possibility of a future beyond a catastrophic event. Throughout Western history, orphans have come not only to symbolize the terror of being alone in a dangerous world, but the pain of losing one's parents, the loss of innocence, as well as the innate human potential to create a better future. And yet, despite all the symbolic reasons orphans frequently appear in literature and musicals, there is a literal reason as well. Orphans have existed in every advanced empire since the beginning of civilization, which is why the very first law codes in the ancient Near East, like Hammurabi, always contain provisions for widows and orphans. These ancient regulations reflect our attempts early on to account for the problems that occur in a patriarchal society. What do we do with children? who become destitute at the loss of their parents. We make provisions for them. It seems obvious. In ancient societies, the protection of the vulnerable was seen as a virtue of the gods, kings, and judges. 
the treatment of orphans was often used as a litmus test for the validity and effectiveness of an entire legal system, and it drove the calls for social reform. The very definition of bad times and seasons of decay in the ancient world was based on the treatment of the vulnerable. If orphans and widows were being abused and exploited, it was considered an unfortunate era in human history. And this helps explain why there are over 100 verses about orphans and widows in the Bible, which has led liberation theologians to proclaim that God must have a preferential option for the poor. Biblically speaking, the proclamation of protecting and providing for orphans is not only seen as the mark of a virtuous society, but the very definition of religion. As it states in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Perhaps if the church had focused primarily on organizing ourselves for the care of orphans and widows, less people today would be saying that they are spiritual but not religious. While we succeeded and failed over the years to practice true religion, it seems that somehow over the last millennium the Spirit has found a way to work in spite of the church by infiltrating the conscience of the West through literature, filling our minds and musicals with a preferential option for orphans. The mission and message of Jesus who cared for orphans and widows in their distress has been quietly haunting Broadway and Disney. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and the one who sent me. Let the little children come to me and do not stop them for it is such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Yes, these words conjure pastoral scenes from our children's Bibles and sentimental pictures of Sunday school curriculum. We tend to see Jesus inviting children to come and sit on his knee like Santa Claus at the mall or like Mr. Rogers telling stories. However, these portraits are not reality. Our conceptions of children today are vastly different than they were in Jesus' time. Children in the ancient world were at the bottom rung of the social ladder in terms of status and rights, age, division, power, and responsibility, or were all hierarchical. Authority ran downward, and children were barely above slaves, considered the property of the father of the head of the household. So it's rather remarkable that Jesus drew attention to children at all. It would have been shocking for the average first century Judean to hear Jesus talk about children let alone to command his followers to welcome and uphold them as models of his social program. Regardless of whether they were part of a prominent wealthy family of high social status, children in those days were non-entities, treated as barely human until they were well into adulthood. Even more startling, the word for children in this passage is not the common Greek word tekton, technon, which means heir or offspring or progeny, someone who belonged to someone else, to some family. The word here is pation, a rare term that does not refer to familial relationship at all, but to the age of a person, specifically seven years old or younger. And one of the most troubling things about this word, pation, is that it is based in the root word paes, which means slave, servant. 
And this etymology reveals a lot about the way people in the first century thought about children, as well as how revolutionary Jesus' teachings really were. Theologian Andres Vanard claims the most accurate translation of Pation in Mark's gospel is not children, but street children, which really changes how we hear this story. Then he took a poor little street child, and taking it in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes one such street child welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Let the poor little street children come to me, and do not stop them. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a poor little street child will never enter it. When we hear these stories, Jesus and the little children, we almost never ask why. Why would Jesus offer children as such a stark illustration with an ultimatum about the kingdom of God? Who was this for? The scribes and Pharisees? No. This was a teaching aimed at his own disciples. Jesus noticed they were quarreling with each other as they traveled to Capernaum, and he asked, what are you arguing about on the way here? But they were silent, for they were arguing about who was the greatest. Their silence betrayed them. And that's why Jesus served up some humble pie here and said, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. This is not the only time that disciples got it wrong about greatness. In the next chapter, James and John tried to jockey for positions of power and honor in the kingdom. And Jesus tried to tell them, you don't know what you're asking. The places of honor in the kingdom on my right and left are going to be crosses. When the other disciples got wind of the Zebedee brothers' grab for power, they were furious. So Jesus had to intervene and said, you know, among the Gentiles, they recognize their rulers. They lord power over them, and their great ones are like tyrants, but not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great must be your servant. And whoever misses to be first must be the slave of all. Back in 2016, when Keith Lamont Scott was killed by a police officer here in Charlotte, an uprising of protests broke out and our city was on the national news every night for a week. And after the protest, clergy of all faiths gathered together for a conversation about how we could respond to the unrest in the city. We were hoping to try to organize an interfaith coalition of congregations working together for the common good of all people in Charlotte. During that meeting, the pastor of a very large and powerful congregation in our city asked, what are we trying to do here? And I replied, well, we're trying to build power together so we can advocate for the common good of those in our community. The pastor responded to me in the whole room, well, if this is about power, then I'm out. And so are my people, because Jesus was not about power. The irony of this interaction was not lost on the other clergy who were present. As we were leaving the meeting, one of the pastors of a smaller church in the city said to me, it must be nice not to have to think about power when you have all the power. Contrary to the perspective of this powerful pastor, Jesus was all about power. And Scripture offers a clear picture of how Jesus exercised power and taught his followers to do the same. 
John the Baptist described Jesus as one more powerful than I. The gospel writers often describe Jesus as engaging in deeds of power and underscore the consistency with which the Pharisees and scribes challenged Jesus' power and authority to teach and heal and eat with sinners or break their interpretations of law and tradition. In Philippians 2, Paul claimed that Jesus did not regard power as something to be exploited, but humbly emptied himself of his power for the sake of others. The act of self-emptying that theologians call kenosis is considered an essential component of Jesus' identity. Therefore, as the followers of Jesus, we are not only called to consider our power, but to empty ourselves of power for the sake of other people and the world around us. Rather than exploiting power for ourselves, the highest moral, ethical, and godly way to exercise our power is to give it away. Let me be clear, power in and of itself is neither good nor evil. Power is neutral until it is exercised. The way power is employed determines whether power becomes good or evil. Power can be wielded for selfish gain and held over people to dominate or control them or communities. Or power can be exercised with people for the benefit of others in support of the common good of the least of these among us like the orphans and the widows. That's what those law codes were trying to do way back in the day. Unfortunately, for far too long, many people of faith, many American Christians have failed to take responsibility for their power. And yet power remains a deeply moral and spiritual question for us all, which is why Jesus said, to those whom much is given, much is required. Or if you don't like Jesus, maybe you like what was said during the French Revolution and also in Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. There was once a woman who embodied this truth. Her name was Julia, and she was born in the western highlands of Guatemala. At the age of seven, Julia was herself converted by looking at an image of Jesus on the cross, and it broke her heart open with compassion. She grew up to become a schoolteacher and then went on to study theology in Costa Rica. She hoped to become a minister, but quickly found no church would ordain a woman. So she decided she didn't need credentials and quick decided she would serve on her own, become a minister at the Ciudad de Niños, a detention center for youth in her area. There, Julia claimed that she had a second conversion experience. As she explained, the young people there brought me to the gospel again. They questioned how far my faith in Jesus went. They asked me, was it only a faith concerned with my personal salvation? or with their lived reality. The forgotten children Julia encountered at the Ciudad de Niños were signs of the failure of the state and the church. The church in Guatemala favored the powerful and the privileged. Those with wealth and power acted as if they owned the church. And so Julia would go on to say, the way a country treats its children and adolescents is a measure of how humane or inhumane that society is. And she said, the same goes for the church. Power in Guatemala was among the most evenly distributed in the world, and disparity there led eventually to a 36-year civil war, where government forces sought to root out a weak insurgency, slaughtered whole communities, 
destroyed hundreds of villages, leading to 200,000 deaths and the disappearance of over a million people. Many were forced into exile, including Julia. Filled with grief over the loss of her home and her people, Julia channeled her suffering into poetry. She became the voice of the displaced, the voice of the orphans and the widows and the poor of Guatemala, the voice of her people. Julia Esquivel was her name, and she died in 2019, but not before speaking all over the world about the genocide in Guatemala and advocating for the plight of her people. In one of her poems, she wrote, there is something within us which doesn't let us sleep, which doesn't let us rest, which doesn't stop pounding deep inside. It is the silent, warm weeping of indigenous women without their spouses. It is the sad gaze of the children fixed beyond memory. What keeps us from sleeping is that they have threatened us with resurrection. At each nightfall, though exhausted from the endless inventory of killings, we continue to love life and we do not accept their death. In this marathon of hope, she said, there are always others to relieve us in bearing the courage necessary to arrive at the goal, which lies beyond death. And so, accompany us then on this vigil so that you will know what it is to dream. You will know how marvelous it is to live threatened with resurrection, to no longer be afraid of death, to live each day to kill death, to die each day to give birth to life, and in this death of death to die a thousand times and be reborn another thousand through love, that love for my people which nourishes hope. We are in our own marathon of hope, living in a country with 18 million orphans, hundreds of unaccompanied minors crossing our borders looking for safety, desperate Haitian children hoping for exile in Texas, an enormous childcare crisis nationwide. Children remain the last to be vaccinated in a pandemic, killing thousands a day. Many have been asked to attend schools without necessary safety precautions. All children, especially those with disabilities, remain the most vulnerable people in our world. If, as Esquivel wrote, the way a country treats its children is a measure of how humane that society is, then we have a whole lot of work to do. It's interesting that what unites the three organizations on our campus is our care for children. Our mission is to welcome them and include them, to care for and provide for them, to educate and empower them. Like Jesus, we do not believe that children are less valuable or lower status than the rest of society. Nor do we believe that people should simply care for their own children. We believe that all children are our children. And they are not just our future or our present, but our family and our responsibility. They don't serve us, we serve them. They are not here to bless us, we bless them. They are not the last but the first. And if we are to usher in the kingdom, the most important task we have is to place the last first, to make the least greatest, and to put our children on the top and not the bottom. 
Jesus' vision for a beloved community of his followers was founded on this alternative way of exercising power, not lording it over other people like the tyrannical nations of the world or using power to control a community, but offering our power for others through acts of selfless service. Humility is not an attitude but an activity, an act of self-emptying, giving our power away for the sake of the poor and the powerless. The time has come for us to think differently about our power, to take our power more seriously, to give up our power where we can, to share our power where we can't, and to exercise our power in ways that ensure everyone gets a seat at the table, especially the little children. Like the Bible and Western literature, Broadway and Disney, Julia and Jesus, we should be prioritizing the lives of orphans. And yet we should not only be lifting up orphans as a symbol of the terror of being alone in a dangerous world or the pain of losing our parents or the loss of our innocence, but as a referendum on who we are as a people and a society and a church, as a dramatic calling to create a new and better future. But in order to do that, we have to get serious about power to determine our sphere of influence and decide if we can truly humble ourselves, striving not to be the greatest by exploiting our power, lording it over others, trying to control the church or the world, but using our power to create a better future where orphans are always welcomed and included and protected. This will not be easy. Jesus warned his disciples that it would require the kind of suffering and sacrifice that looks like a cross. But there is no greater power than the power of love. And as the disciples would soon discover, the power of love can even overcome the love of power. Loving people more than power is what nourishes hope and gives us the stamina to keep on walking on this marathon that we call a journey of faith. So if you are one of the brave souls who are willing to serve because you love people more than power, then go forth as Victor Hugo instructed in his masterpiece Les Mis and keep on loving people no matter what. Love still more because as he said, to die of love is to live by it. Amen.